Tonight we're looking at, okay, so as we begin, just so we can kind of keep our minds wrapped around where we've gone and where we're going. We are looking at the uh, authority of Scripture. We're looking at the canon of Scripture. Where did it come from? Why these 66 books uh, and no others? Um, We're going to be looking at textual transmission and some of the textual issues. But we began with, and we're still finding ourselves just finishing up, hopefully we'll finish up tonight, this uh, journey through what does the Bible say about itself? You guys with me? So what's about, what, is the, what are the claims that the Bible is making? Okay? So it, it always uh, amazes me that, uh, you know, like you guys were just sharing about some of the conflicts you've had out on the uh, corner at uh, Planned Parenthood and how often those come from Christians or people who think they know more about who God is or what God wants than, than a lot of other people. But when you come down to brass tacks, they... They don't know their word. They don't know what, what it is that the Bible's saying. They they have a presupposition and a in a an emotional tie, perhaps, but they it's without knowledge. They have a zeal without knowledge or understanding. So we want to keep all the things that we do, everything we do, where we go, how we get there, what we do in terms of ministry, the final authority and arbiter of our faith is the Word of God. What's the Word of God say? And is it consistent? Is the Word of God consistent with itself? Yes? Oh, good. Then we're in good shape. Let's, then we can move on to, to other, uh, other data. But for now, we're, we'll find ourselves focusing on that. Last time, we discussed inerrancy and, and several other topics. This time, we're going to be looking at canon. But when we talk about canon, canon is the concept that the Bible was the measuring rod, the stick. And my, uh, my assertion will be that that is uh, self-authenticated. It is something the Bible claims for itself and accomplishes within itself. And something that happened early, not late. A lot of people, you go take a, a class on uh, uh, world religions in, in college... Um, I didn't take it because I knew what it was going to be like, but I had friends who did. <coughs> and one of the things they discuss is the idea that the Bible doesn't exist till 5th, maybe 6th century. You know, so this book is way after the, the events that were taking place. And basically, a, a, any, if you've ever listened to Bart Ehrman, any Bart Ehrman thing he's ever said is what this class taught him. Christianity. However, it was always interesting when it was dealing with the other pagan religions. It didn't seem to have those same problems. Odd how that is. But anyway, I digress. We'll take a look. Deuteronomy 31. Let's pick it up in verse 24 to 26. And uh, to me, this is the basis of the Old, uh, Old Testament canon. It says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So by the end of Moses' life, 
you have already the concept being taught from Moses to the people for the first five books, right? That they were canon. They were rule. These are the law to rule over your life, to guide you, direct you, what's right, what's wrong. <clears throat> so that would, that would put our date for the beginning of an Old... Now, that's not the end of the Old Testament canon because the Old Testament grows with the children of Israel to the exile. So <clears throat> there's going to be more and more things that are going to be laid there at the side of it. But the concept, okay, that's what we're looking at. Is the concept of the canon foreign? Something outside of the Bible that's imported in? Or is the idea of canon inside the Bible and it says, yes, this is authoritative for your life. You guys get what I'm saying? So that's what we're looking at. So near the end of Moses' life, he finished writing the words of this law and the book to the very end. So he completed the first five books, <clears throat> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, these would not merely be a historical record, but uh, they would be uh, uh, a guide, the witness against them. Uh, so in other words, immediately after they're writing these books, um, they were to start functioning as the rule. This is, what, what, what are we supposed to do in this situation? Where would they go? To the book of law. What are we supposed to do in this situation? Where did they go? To the book of law. So they were going to the Old Testament. So the point is, the text carries its own authority. It demands that same authority that Moses is laying out. <clears throat> so when you read these words... God saying, you're hearing from me. This is the witness against you. Where did it sit? Keep in mind, it sits right there at the Ark of the Covenant. So where's the Ark of the Covenant going to go? It's going to go in the tabernacle, right? And then just to the side of the Ark of the Covenant, the, which is to be the, the throne, in essence, of God, the kabod, the weight and the glory of God is to be there. What's right beside that? Book of the Law. The book of the law, the, the authority, the witness over. So that the elders of Israel didn't select the canon. They didn't pick it, right? They didn't sit down and say, well, let's gather everyone's books together and decide which one we think is best. Because that's how a lot of people think the Bible happened. A bunch of guys got together in the 4th century, 400 years after Jesus, looked at a bunch of different books and picked the ones that, that they thought you know, basically they battle it out over who's right or wrong and the team that wins picks the book. So a lot of people see it that way. But what we see here, that's not what happened with the Old Testament. Um, the people were to treat it as though it had the same authority as Moses himself, which was or is to say acting on God's authority. What was Moses' authority? Where did he derive that from? From God, right? Mm -hmm. Listen to Moses. Listen to Moses. Moses is saying, listen to the word. His word. <clears throat> so this passage reveals the fundamental reason for believing, uh, or for a believing community to accept a writing as canonical, which is that it's authoritative. The prophetic authority of the writer. Since Moses' authority as God's prophet was unquestioned, his writings were received as from the mouth of God. And we've talked about the test of a true prophet. <clears throat> we'll talk about it a little bit more on uh, Tuesday mornings when, as we continue to discuss some of those ideals. But remember, not only is it the test that we see in Deuteronomy 18, 
everything's going to be right from the prophet of God. It's always going to be right. And whatever he prophesies, he's going to point people toward Yahweh, not toward another God. Those were the two tests of the prophet. But I would also assert that the prophet has a, a call from God, of God, stands before God at some point in his ministry where God says, I'm going to send you. So that it, it's not just an authority that a person took upon themselves. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go be a prophet today. No, God called you, right? God, God, you had a meeting with God. God said, you're my guy. Isaiah 6, we talked about Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3. Um, Jeremiah from the womb, which, by the way, is always a, a fun one out of Planned Parenthood. Got to allude a little bit to it um, on Tuesday. But the, <coughs> the idea that, the, that those were the tests that were to, to bind a prophet, someone who was speaking for God. So then, this now we move. Now Moses is off the scene. Who's next? Okay, so Joshua's obedience to the command demonstrates that the people immediately received the five books of Moses. Joshua 1.8, what's he say? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So in Joshua's mind, Moses is gone. Joshua's on the scene. Did he see those five books as authoritative, as the rule, as canon? Sure. Sure he did. Joshua 8, verse 30. So at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the, the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence uh, of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, <coughs> sojourner as well as native born, with all or with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So how was it that Joshua treated it? That's right. This is God's word. Did it matter? Yep. Did it, did it require a special meeting of a group of people to decide, are we going to follow this? Is this really authoritative? The authority is supernatural and is seen as such from Moses and then on into Joshua. <clears throat> so, uh, point three, therefore, revelation in the form of canonical writings was tied to the prophetic office 
or to the special gift of prophesying demonstrated in those like Joshua. We, we, you'll see the same thing. Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and others among God's holy men. The disappearance of prophets in the closing of that era uh, then marked the end of the Old Testament canon. The last canonical writing to appear was from Malachi in the 5th century B.C., only one prophet, John the Baptist, is known to have followed Malachi, and he contributed no written works to the Old Testament canon. <clears throat> In order that men would not miss the closing of the Old Testament canon, they had what? What do you think? How do they know it was closed? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes. So ultimately, we see the beginning John of the, the new Baptist covenant. Right? John the Baptist. Well, what happened before that? prophets. 400 years of silence. I just want you to think about their history and how often there was a prophet of God, right? Prophesying. Uh, um, you know, the kings would, they would say that Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah writing down their prophecies, delivering those things to the king. <coughs> um, all the way through, we have a pretty good record of a word a word from God for every era as they come from Moses moving forward but then after the exile that last exile and they returned to to uh, Jerusalem then it went quiet and you can read it in writing of that time where Jews are saying What's going on? We haven't had a word from God in 100 years, now 200 years, now 300 years. So what's the point? What's God saying? Old Testament, every Jew knew. The Old Testament ended, but it's not over. It ends with, with a curse and, and, and a looking forward to a new covenant that, that has never been established. And then the final prophet. Right. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, why do you think the scribes and the Pharisees went to him to ask him, hey, are you the prophet Moses spoke about? Which was, say, are you the Messiah? <clears throat> no, I'm not him, but I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, making straight paths for the Lord. So you can't miss God's moving again. And just so you don't miss it, we have not had any movement, any miracles, any things going on, and all of a sudden, Jesus. And you have... You have uh, uh, lepers being cleansed, blind seeing, lame walking, dead coming back to life. Yes. Makes it kind of hard to miss, right? God's, God's doing them. something. They still use the law <coughs> into, into the beginning of when Jesus came. And John, oh, for sure. And, and because they still had, well, like John's, John the Baptist's parents. Uh-huh. You know, he was a Levite, right? Yep, yep. He's a priest. So he was a priest, but they were still talking about using the law there. Oh, for sure. So they still were, they were still clean. And it's interesting as you study through the Old Testament because you will discover dark times in Israel's history when they're struggling in obedience and their lives are really, for lack of a better term, their lives are really sucking. And then all of a sudden they discover the book of the law. You guys remember Josiah? So Josiah is his king, and you know his dad was a wicked guy, you know, and and uh, all of a sudden some guy just happens to <laughs> he's walking around in the in the tabernacle, and he's like, "Oh look, 
We found the, the book of the law. Oh, what's that say? Oh, I don't know. Nobody had read it. The kings were supposed to read it every, every year, right? So they're supposed, to have, they're supposed to go through it. They're supposed to make a copy. Every king was supposed to make a copy of the Old Testament. So they, they sit down and, they're, and they read it and they go, Oh my gosh, look how screwed up we are. Look at all the things God's word says and we've been disobedient, which leads to revival. So it still had power, but there was times in their history where the, the authority of Scripture wasn't being applied, so the people were spiraling. I, I would say it's no different than what we see in our, in our nation today. The, the Word of God has little authority in, in terms of the nation. And, and our nation is, is spiraling in places I'm sure <coughs> we never thought it would go. So, without that word having authority again in the lives of people, that's what brings revival. The word comes alive, the spirit moves, because the spirit is moving through the word and empowering people, and then, then things begin to happen as we, as we recognize that, that reality. So, <clears throat> so, as we look... That's the, it just, I'm just trying to lay out a concept that the Bible had a concept for canon. The, the Bible thought of itself as the rule. Something to look at. Something to guide. Something to, to direct. Uh, then we look at, for the, a similar thing in the New Testament. Um, the rise of the New Testament canon. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do, what's it say? Other scripture. So according to Peter, what was Paul? Yeah. According to Paul, what was Paul? Prophet, apostle. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy called. Peter's the same way. He's going to define himself as an apostle. And one of the important concepts of that office is that the apostle is delivering to us God's word. The finished story. The Old Testament is left looking for a Messiah. The New Testament reveals to us who that Messiah is. Right? Brings in that new covenant, finishes the story. So there were apostles, and uh, we'll talk about it hopefully at the end tonight. I think we'll have time. That they knew they were writing scripture. They it was not like they thought I'm just writing a letter to my friend, and you know, two thousand years later somebody put it in a book and said this is the word of God. They knew. And this is this is Peter saying, Look, guys. This is inspired writing, right? What do we already what do we already talk about? All scripture is what? Inspired by God, right? It's inspired by God. God breathed. Now I told you in that in that context, all scripture was looking at the Old Testament, right? Because he's talking to Timothy about what he'd been raised in. Timothy, you were raised in the scriptures. Well, he wasn't raised in Paul's writings. He was raised in the scriptures, and he said, That's all God breathed. So all scripture. Grafe, all those writings are breathed out by God. Then Peter comes along and says, Paul, his epistles, 
are scripture. And people try to twist them just like they do all the scripture. He put it all in the same category. Applies the same <coughs> the same uh, category together with it. So, and does Paul have some things in his writings that are hard to understand? Yeah. You ever read Romans? <laughs> so, <coughs> right? There's, there's some things that are hard to understand, but what's he saying? Ignorant and unstable twist it to their own destruction as they do all the scripture. So there's even there's always been people trying to twist it, right? Make it say something else. So inspired writings were recognized by the original recipients. The people who were reading these letters saw them as scripture. Second Thessalonians 2:15. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. So what's he saying? That you need to hold fast. What is the anchor? The things that I've taught you. The things that I've shown you. The things we've spoken or written. So again, that's the, that's the 12. Well, actually, there's probably 14, but that should be something that's not uncommon for us, right? How many tribes were there? <laughs> oh, they're called the 12, huh? But when we count them, depending on how you count them, you can come up with more, right? You can come up with 14, I think, if you count Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. 12, 34, I think so. But, but they're always considered the 12. Well, there were apostles. Men specifically called from God who were eyewitnesses of what happened who penned for a scripture that, that the church always saw as authoritative. That's my point. From the minute it was written, when Paul delivered a letter to Thessalonians, when, when Peter delivered his letter, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, when these things were going out, they were received from the apostles as Scripture, and as Scripture they were the rule. They were authoritative from the beginning. I can understand Paul being designated an apostle based on what Peter said. But how do you justify Peter or James... Just because they, you know, the opening statement, Simon Peter, bond servant, apostle, just because they claim to be an apostle, or is there some way to, you know, what I'm saying? Yeah, I, uh, for Peter and most of the uh, most of the disciples, I would I would consider all twelve, so including Matthias, um, and I would consider him as such that 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 was the purpose in Jesus choosing him. Right, and I, and so I so I would go through. So then I would say the gospel. The gospel assigning them as disciples made, made them authoritative. So from that point, Peter going forward, not that it ever stopped people from crowing in the background, but, but it, you know, when Jesus said, you know, Peter, you're, you're, or Cephas, your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now I don't think Peter was made Pope then, but I do think, you know, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to give you the keys and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The idea is God saying, I'm giving you authority. And in John 21, when, <clears throat> when Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And upon each proclamation, he, he gives him a calling, tend my sheep, feed my flock, take care of the lambs. So the idea of, uh, I think comes from Jesus 
and then and then Peter moving moving forward from there. So that's where I would make that connection for him. And that's to me why <clears throat> I think Acts, what is it, chapter two or chapter one is important. Some people don't think it is. But I think it's important that he that they choose another guy. Because I think Peter is Jesus breathed on him and said, Receive you the Holy Spirit, right? So when God said, Let there be light, light didn't happen <clears throat> later, happened then, right? So, I, so, in my opinion, Peter has the Holy Spirit right then. And he's led by the Spirit, and the Spirit says, Choose somebody, and they choose him just like they would culturally have chosen anyone. You know, nobody complains about it. that's how they chose, the, that's how John the Baptist's dad was doing uh, 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 his service in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> his time had come. He was chosen. So, <clears throat> And yet there's the angel there to proclaim to him, you're going to have a child, but the one to proclaim. So, so I think that that was important. And what was, the, what was the requirement? Someone who has been with us from the beginning, who is an eyewitness. And so the point to me in that is to say, that that's why Jesus picked those guys. He was he was saying these are the martus. These are the witnesses who are going to be the source of New Testament. They were the apostles, not the B apostles. That's right. So just to take that a step further, what about Luke then? For like Luke and Acts, how do we, how do we get to that? Because he wasn't. Jude was. Yeah, Jude calls himself an apostle. So some of them, like Paul, is picked out separately by God. Jude being a half-brother of Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that he had that meeting with Jesus. And Jesus, because the Bible says his brothers believed after the resurrection. Nepotism, yeah. <laughs> some, some, level, some level of nepotism. For Luke, um, I would say that the, the amanuensis is less vital than the eyewitness testimony. And for the most part, where where Luke gets his gospel from, a lot of people want to say that all the gospel writers copied from something else. They call it Q. Uh, or they say Mark was the primary, was the first gospel, and they use that as the basis. I, I don't know that I buy that. I I think they they all had their source, the one that was sharing the eyewitness account with them, and, and they write it. For Luke, afterwards, the book of Acts, Luke's there. So he's with Paul. So from, 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 for the Pauline part, for the Acts moving forward, yeah, Luke's an eyewitness. He's right there beside Paul. Uh, but for the gospel, I would just call Luke an amanuensis, and it just happens to bear his name. Uh, you know, but he's the guy who compiled, and which is what he says in Luke chapter 1. I compiled these eyewitness accounts for you, O Theophilus, that, that you might... Uh, you know, come to know and understand that Jesus is the Christ. So, so still, and by amanuensis, I just mean he's a secretary. He's a guy. That's what they call him. So he's the guy writing out the eyewitness account. Um, so, that's what I would do with that. <clears throat> and and then I would say, you know, as those because really the Gospels are later. The first letters to hit the scene are Paul's. Peter's probably close. John's late. John's after all those guys are dead. Probably when you're getting John's epistles. 
So, so those are first, and then the Gospels come. But what, what, what is it that, that makes the Gospels, that ignites the idea that the Gospels should be written? Think about it. Well, for the beginning of the move of the church, what do you have? You have 12 eyewitnesses traveling all around the world telling people what they saw. And then what happens? Herod kills one. And then you, people back up and go, somebody better start writing this down. Because now there's 11. And then there were 10. And then there were 9. You get what I'm saying? And so the Gospels become uh, important. <coughs> so there's a desire to get those things out there. And I think Mark is fairly early. I think, I think Mark is probably 50s. You know, I'd put him close to around, somewhere around the time of Paul when, when Mark comes out. And I'm hopeful they found a fragment of, of the Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Did you know about it? Yeah. Have you, I've never heard any, anybody said anything. They're, they're working on um, Yeah, they've been working on it. Now. They've been working on it for like 10 years. They're killing me. Um, okay. Tell them what, to take their what, time. What, I don't know. So there's a marking fragment that they found in a face mask on a sarcophagus. Is that the word? Yeah. Or on a mummy. <coughs> Where the rich people would have gold ones. The poor people would make them out of paper mache, I guess. And this guy on the inside used the... Mark's gospel, a part of Mark's gospel. So, so hopefully it's something in that we'll be able to date it, and then maybe it may be the earliest fragment that we that we have. So it's exciting, but it's crazy that they're still finding things. Well, I think first, the one that I was listening about was I think first century, maybe second. Yeah, this one they're going first century puts it somewhere between nineties to the moment. So first century is much more exciting. Second century we got. We already got those. I'd like to find some of that early stuff. But anyways, we'll see. Um, here's the other thing. Uh, uh, we kind of talked, touched on it a little bit. <clears throat> um, so they hold fast to these traditions. Um, so this is due to the already recognized authority of the apostles, prophets, uh, that were gifted and given by Jesus to the church. To me, that's the point of Ephesians chapter 4. Well, I remember when we studied the Bible, and I think most of you guys are doing living by the book. Yeah? Are you doing living by the book? No? Okay. <laughs> so the challenge of living by the book is uh, application doesn't come before interpretation, right? So sometimes we, we make that error. And in order to make interpretation, what do I got to do first? Observation. I got to observate, and I need to wear my observation out, right? So I would tell the guys, I told Jason, I'm sure I told Daniel before, uh, I like to read a text at least 50 times. Just read it. Before I look at anybody else's anything, I'm going to read it 50 times over and over. And I'm going to slow down and I'm going to chew on the words because I'll, I miss things because I'm pretty sure I know what it says. You know what I mean? We have opinions before we've done our observation and we start pulling out the pieces so that we can have the right interpretation. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is what is occurring. And 
Let's back up. If you guys got your Bibles, I'm going to back up a, a few verses. So flip over to it in Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> so I really want us to get the... I want us to do the hard part. Okay, so... Yeah, well, I'm just going to do it all. So I therefore started the first verse. A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there is one body. What's he talking about? The church, right? One body. There's one Spirit. What's the Spirit that leads the church? Holy Spirit. Good. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. What's the one hope? Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're so there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, <clears throat> one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Who? Uh, okay, then in verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what's he saying? Is he saying everybody has the same things? No, so grace is given according to the measure of Christ by his gift. How do we get these things? How do we understand these things? How do we know the things that we know? Because grace was given to us through the gift of Jesus. That's the context, okay? Then we go on. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is a quotation that has been altered. Paul does this sometimes. Paul alters quotations. What gives him the authority to do that? Yeah, he's the apostle. Mm -hmm. Right? So he can tell us, listen, here's the point. I can't do that. I can't go pull a scripture from the Old Testament and change it and say, this is, thus saith the Lord. Right? I can't do that. But, but Paul, he can. He has that Authority, But here's the point. When he says he has ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He's talking about the, the triumph. When a man would conquer a people, like say Rome conquered somebody, they lead all those captives in and they stand before the people. But this part is different. The people that you conquered and the people who are proclaiming your praise and glory for being this incredible conqueror give you gifts. Right? Isn't that how it worked in the old days? What, when you conquered a people, if they still wanted to have their stuff, they gave you gifts. You, get, you set up a king for them or whatever. But Paul changes this last phrase and says, He gave gifts to men. So Jesus conquers. He wipes out the enemies. He stands up on top and, you know, the victor of it all. But rather than receiving gifts, He gives them. Okay, so then he's, he's going to talk about these gifts that he gave. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? That, that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, a lot of times you'll have people use this scripture to say Jesus went to hell. But I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. It's talking about the incarnation and his ascension. He who, who descended is also the one who ascended. High above all principalities and powers, right? Is there any name under heaven by which 
or, or that is higher than Jesus. His name is the most exalted, right? Okay, I'm not trying to say that that other thing didn't happen. I'm, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just suggesting that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the incarnation, God coming to earth, that he came down, and he's also the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what was the gifts that Jesus gave to the church? The apostles. The prophets. All the, the beginning, <coughs> the birthplace of the church springing forth. And I, and, I, and I would suggest that all of that came from the, the, those who followed Christ on earth. Jesus didn't come to draw the masses. Remember when he got 5,000 people following him, what did he do? Yeah, he chased them off. He's like, uh, okay, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, what? Ah, and they leave. And I'm sure the disciples are frustrated. Man, Lord, we just, they weren't going to make you king. What are you doing? Look, I'm not, God didn't come to build an army. What did he come? He come to, a, to establish those that he would give as gifts to his church. Those who could be apostles, those who could be prophets, those who could be evangelists, right? And we're going to see all that come out. We read the book of Acts. We see all that come into fruition, right? The Lord really pulling or pouring those things out. So this is the gift that Jesus gave. He gave this gift. Now, when we're looking at it in Ephesians 4, when Paul's writing it, this is office. When you and I read it, there's no more office of an apostle. None of us are eyewitnesses of Jesus. We weren't there when he walked on earth, did his miracles, right? There are men on TV who will say they're an apostle. But they don't meet the qualifications that the Bible uses, right? But, okay, that's, that's kind of interpretation, observation. What about application? What does apostle mean? Somebody sent out. Do we send people out today? Yeah. So And, and so there is a... A, a less, uh, what's the right term? <clears throat> There's not the office, but there is the expression of going out. A prophet who's, who could, a prophet was someone who could say, Thus saith the Lord. I don't say that. Far as I can remember, in 22 years of ministry, I have never said that. <clears throat> I try not to be presumptuous, right? Here's what God says. Unless I'm reading it out of here, if I'm reading it out of here, I can say, this is what God says, right? I can do that authoritatively. But otherwise, I haven't had a face-to-face with God like Paul did. I didn't have a face-to-face with God like Peter did. I didn't have a face-to-face with God like John did. You get what I'm saying? So these guys have authority. Eyewitness, they were called in and utilized, but we still prophesy. We still have the gift of prophecy. We still have the expression of prophecy. We don't have the office of a prophet. So our roles are less authoritative? Yes. Okay. I would say. They're still the same roles, there's just not authority with them. Similar. They're similar roles. 
Um, but there, yes, I would say <clears throat> certainly less authoritative. When Paul says, I say, not the Lord, that did, still was from God. All it means is Jesus didn't tell me this, but as an apostle, I'm telling you, this is what you shouldn't be doing, or this is what you should be doing. So he has that, I don't have that authority. I, the, only, the only authority I, I and I, I don't know that it's authority, I would say I have a responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth in the lives of people around me and guide or direct as the word declares and I'll give it a hell. <coughs> so that's why James says, let not many of you be teachers. There's stricter condemnation on both sides. God's going to look at what you said, but who else looks at what you said? Yeah. Stand by. You start teaching, all of a sudden people start looking, right? So they'll be, you have a critic on one side, their judgment may not be always right. God's judgment will always be right, right? So, but either way, you're going to have that. So anyways, my point is, as I try to digress, we see that the gift that Jesus gave was the offices that would accomplish the giving of the word of God to the church. Everybody tracking with me okay? Uh, okay, and then um, uh, let's, let's just finish out that, that section. So, the purpose of these guys was to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? So that's all of us. We're equipped through their work for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man or to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning craftiness in deceitful schemes but rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this, that's what Jesus did. So that's the establishing of these offices that brought forth the New Testament, which, uh, uh, which was authoritative from the moment it was written. Uh, it was the immovable, infallible doctrinal foundation of these teachings upon which the church's theology and practices were to be built. We build it off of this. Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Right? Jesus is the one from which this all springs. Right? It's not a coincidence that he is called the word of God. So <clears throat> I would say the Old Testament springs from him. The New Testament springs from him. That he is the source of it all. That's why Jesus could say to the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures daily for in them you seek life, but it is these that speak of me. He's on <coughs> every page. So 
Very early in the apostolic period, churches began copying, sharing, collecting, and using the apostles and prophets' writings as standards alongside the Old Testament scriptures. So four things we learn from the text. Peter told the churches to whom he was writing that Paul had written to them according to the wisdom given him. So we're back to that first, uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Paul wrote according to the wisdom. Where did Paul get his wisdom? Right? So at, at, at the very least, the Holy Spirit, but beyond that, God breathed. Mm-hmm. God breathed. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What's Paul saying? Look, I'm giving you what God gave me. I'm giving you what God gave me. I didn't learn this from human wisdom. Some guy didn't teach me this. I got this from God. And I am giving this to you. Is that where they make the break between like an apostle being because Jesus taught the apostles and disciple at that motion? Because the disciples was the, you were given the great commission. Yeah. As a disciple. Right. Okay, as a disciple you were supposed to go out and teach, but what you were supposed to teach was the thing given to the apostles by Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I would say, yeah, I would say at the Great Commission the disciples uh I would say maybe I wouldn't say that. I would say that Jesus commissioned the apostles. He personally commissioned the apostles. So he, he personally sends them out. Uh, we're all called to go out. But once Jesus commissions them, Paul's the easiest one to pick on because we see him snatch him out of the air. Uh, Peter in John 21, uh, you know, um, so there's there's places where we see a commissioning from Jesus toward a, a disciple at that moment, I would say. now. But in turn, the apostles commission the disciples. Sure. The, the, well, the apostles commission... They could commission anyone. They, right. Because right. you have... With their authority. Right, right. So you have Paul commissioning Timothy, Titus. Right. You have... And so, yes, yeah, yeah. So that... And then that goes on. You know, I'm not saying that that, that necessarily stops. But it the further... to perpetuate. Right. But the further it gets away from the apostle, the less authoritative it is every step. Right, but it, but you still come back to square one where this is the the canon of the New Testament, mm-hmm. right? Right, where the authority is. So the authority we had at one time in a human, we have now in the book. That's the authority now, and that's the and that that with the Holy Spirit can commission a man today and set him apart. You know, just like he did Paul. What did it say when Paul was in Antioch? The Holy Spirit came upon the elders, and they said, and the Holy Spirit said, "Separate unto me uh, Paul and Barnabas." Is Paul and Barnabas then right? Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. So, so, and and that was a something I think that occurred very naturally through the elders in the church. 
pulling those two guys out, sending them out that had authority through the Holy Spirit and ultimately uh, a result of Scripture and the work of apostles before him. Uh, as, as Antioch, uh, you know, really springs out of the persecution that happened in Jerusalem that spread the people out. And, uh, and now you had guys who were there in the first church and the first service and the first events and the moving of the Holy Spirit. And Antioch and bringing that, those same experiences with them. That makes sense? So, moving, uh, <clears throat> moving through that. Okay, second thing. He said Paul wrote the same way in all his letters. This indicates not only was Peter aware of an already established collection of Paul's writings in circulation, he was also aware that his audience knew and possessed them. One of the first codexes that we have, a codex is an accumulation of, of texts in a book. <coughs> one, of the, one of the early codexes that we have has all the writings of Paul together. The interesting thing, side note, and I've shared it with you guys before, it had one book that we say wasn't written by Paul in that collection. You remember which one? Hebrews. Hebrews is in that one too. Which is funny. I, unfortunately, I can't use that in my proof texting that Paul is the author, but, but uh, interesting that it would be included. <laughs> All Paul and Hebrews. So it just uh, seems... Anyways, so there they were... I just want you to see that already in the beginning of the church... Paul's letters are being collected, copied, and sent to other churches. Okay, so they, they're saying, Apostle, Apostle Paul wrote us a letter of authority. This is the Word of God. They copied it, send it. That's why we have so many copies of, of the New Testament. Because, it, you know, there were no printing press. How did you get it? Yeah, that's right. And, and you didn't have a copy machine, so what did you do? Wrote it down. He wrote it down, huh? Wrote it down. And that's why there are textual variants. Because last I checked, you and me sit down and write, and there's the possibility that I skip a word somewhere, isn't it? Or that I see the first letter of a word and jump to a different word. But if there are thousands of us doing that, will we be able to see those things? You bet. They stick out like a sore thumb. Here we are 2,000 years later. We don't have a hard time seeing them. When we look at the text, we go, oh yeah, I see what they did. I see what happened. Guys writing with a pen in an inkwell with a candle at the threat of death at any moment. Yeah. That's what, there's a lot of things that could... But what does God... What did Jesus say? He said, not one jot or tittle will pass away. You'll get it all. So, not that we're talking about textual transmission right now, but I would state that we have... <laughs> 110 pieces of a 100 piece puzzle so our problem isn't that we've lost the word we just picked up some extra things and if that's true they're readily readily visible readily oh, it's a new word but anyways the third thing uh, he noted that false teachers had been using Paul's writings. These men interpreted them wrongly. Literally, they were untaught men, uh, ignorant. Uh, this suggests that while the early Christians were using Paul's writings for instruction and sound doctrine, the false teachers who hadn't learned what Paul's more difficult writings meant were distorting their meanings. That's no different than what happens today. How does a false teacher arise on a scene? 
a man who is unlearned, hasn't spent any time really trying to understand uh, where and how to interpret the Word of God. There's some basic rules that ought to be followed. If everybody read or did the study living by the book and then started making their weirdness, you'd have less. You get what I'm saying? So there is... There, there is a way that you should read and keep things in context. And we do it when we read the newspaper. <laughs> so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard. But for whatever reason, you know, now we live in a time where people say, well, this is my truth, or this is what I think it says, or this is what... Look, it only says what it says. You may apply that different... This is how I apply that in my life. You get what I mean? But one interpretation... Fourth, Peter equated Paul's authoritative writings with Old Testament scriptures in saying that they twist these things to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The term translated other, uh, loipos, refers to the remaining members of the same category. Thus, around AD 65, Peter had already placed Paul's writings as equal par with the Old Testament scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we looked at this earlier, talks about keeping the good tradition. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. These things are authoritative. (coughs) The word traditions simply means things handed down. So notice that the source of these traditions is the apostles. That's what made them worthy. Um either their spoken teachings or their written words. So this demonstrates a couple of factors key to both the doctrine of Scripture and the doing of theology. First, uh, about Scripture. We've already seen the New Testament writings were accepted as authoritative because the apostles penned or approved them. Paul's instructions reinforce this view of the authoritative nature of apostolic teaching and writings in the very first Christian communities. This is why they copied them. It's why they shared them. It's why they collected them in codexes. It's why they passed them around, because they were already authoritative. So this happens early in church history. Next, we note that the Thessalonians were to read the writings of the apostles in line with the oral traditions, sound doctrine they'd already received. In fact, a few verses earlier, when Paul was delivering some details about prophetic events, he said, Do you not remember when I was with you? I taught you these things. In other words, they were fully expected and encouraged to read the writing of Paul in light of good theology, in light of good, sound, trustworthy oral tradition. Only then would they have been able to better understand the writings and not find themselves led astray. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Same thing's true today. Same spirit who gifted apostles and prophets has also Mm -hmm. given to the church evangelists, pastors, teachers for building up the body of Christ through their teaching. Throughout church history, spirit-gifted teachers have lived and died for the faith, bestowing upon future generations a massive cache of theological and practical wisdom learned often through trial and error. This is the kind of tradition that he's talking about holding on to. That's why it's important for us to have some concept of uh, church history. We know where the church came from, how the church dealt with certain heresies, how it developed different doctrines so that we can understand the work that went into accomplishing that. 
A lot of times we just say, I hate doctrine. I hate theology. This is dumb and boring and stupid stuff. But it's the, it's the way that that came about. It's how that got to us. You tracking with me? And as that gets to us, how that gets to us is the part that we want to be able to understand. So that when we look at doctrine and we say, where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? And if you look at the journey through time in history, you begin to understand why they use the words they use. Why it's such a long definition and not a short definition. Because they're trying to deal with all the weird issues that crop up as a result of it. Make sense? Alright, facts that we don't want to forget. God is knowable and has made himself known. He revealed. God reveals himself through various means. Scripture is true and all it affirms. That's the idea of inerrancy. Scripture is true in all it affirms. Jesus is the center and goal of Scripture. And the goal of theology is transformation, not just information. Understand, comprehend, <coughs> hold on. Um, I put a little list in here of some things to <coughs> avoid scriptures that tell us what we want to be careful of. Um, you guys should take a look at those things when you got time. Uh, it's just uh, uh, warnings out of scripture, uh, holding on to the things that are important. Um, so I would encourage you guys to take a, a look at those. What time is it? 2018? 8.18. Okay, just a few more scriptures I want to go over with you. We often ask the question, or people have often asked the question, did the, did the apostles know what they were doing when they did it? Alright, so let's talk about it. Did they, did they know I'm writing scripture when they wrote their things? First Thessalonians 2.13. I don't know if you guys have this, sorry. I'll try to be nice and Decide whether or not I want to give it to you after. First Thessalonians 2.13 Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul know what he's saying? Did he think he was teaching the word of God? Saying the word of God, sharing the word of God. <clears throat> so Paul knows. He says, probably his earliest letter, uh, he's explicit about the authority. You received the word of God, which you heard from us. That's pretty straightforward. And you accepted it not as though it came from men, but as it is, the word of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38. It says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul is saying his authority is so sure that if someone disagrees with me, they're a false teacher. They're out. Because if they are of the Lord, they agree. 
they would acknowledge. So someone coming against Paul was a dead set sign, just like the signs of Deuteronomy 18 in the Old Testament that said, here's how you can tell a false prophet. Paul says, you want to tell a false teacher? He don't, he's not going to recognize what I'm telling you. And if he doesn't, then he's not telling you the word of God. So Paul, he says, they should acknowledge that what I'm showing you, what I've written, what I've given you is a command from the Lord. There's not a, a sharper <laughs> stick that, uh, that you could poke at that. Luke chapter 1. Let's take a look at Luke. We asked about Luke a little earlier. Luke 1, 1 in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty considering the things you have been taught. So Luke makes express claims to be passing down apostolic tradition. In his prologue, Luke claims that the traditions included in his gospel have been delivered to him by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So most scholars view the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word as a clear reference to the apostles. And the term delivered is a standard reference to the way that authoritative apostolic tradition is passed along. Thus Luke understood his gospel to be the embodiment of the authoritative apostolic word that had been delivered and entrusted to him. Luke does not see himself primarily as a biographer or even a historian. The Lucan evangelist is a writer of scripture, a hagiographer who is proclaiming what God has, what God has accomplished among us. Hagiographer, a set-apart writer. Somebody set-apart to deliver. Revelation 1. We went through this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So when John says he's writing Revelation, does he know he's writing Scripture, the Word of God, from the lips of God, to from the lips of God to our ears? That's not any, that's just a, a quick, that's not all, that's just a quick, survey of scripture but just so we can get the idea so if we hear the the question well did these guys even know they were writing the word <laughs> they knew it they knew it was authoritative and as they were giving it out uh so that's probably as far as we'll that's as far as we'll go tonight but that's as far as we'll go discussing what it is that the bible says about itself um and then we'll move on to some other things next time Anybody got any questions? Comments?
Sorry I don't have notes to read ahead this time. I'll work on it though. You might have them before. Maybe a couple hours. I'll try to get them out as soon as I got them done. All right. Daniel, you want to pray us up? Lord, I just uh, thank you for this time, Lord. I just, uh, for what your word is, just that it's, uh, it's truth, Lord, and it's, uh, it represents who you are, Lord. I just pray as we go that you would be with us, Lord, that you would just uh, open our eyes to see the opportunities that you've placed around us to uh, spread your word and uh, spread your light. And I thank you for this time that you've given us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.